Welcome to the Yams and Yukon podcast, where we explore the fabric of Black identities through culture, food, art, life experiences, and more, sharing the stories of international creatives. Hi, everyone. I'm Heather. Hi, everyone. I'm Kamara, and we are your co-hosts. Welcome to our new listeners joining us today, and a special thank you to those of you who are returning to the table with us. We have a fantastic guest coming to the Yams and Yuka table today, but before they join us at the table, we will go into our appetizer for a bite-sized conversation on today's topic. So let's see what is on the menu today. So today we wanted to focus on rising stars and with that we're reflecting on our early days, entering into our professions, what it's like starting off as a young artist, a young creative and sort of what we think it is like for others today. So Kamara, what was it like for you starting out? So for me starting out, I just remember being fearless. I remember being fearless and really quite confident in my abilities. Mm -hmm. I thought that I was a great dancer. I mean, I was a great dancer. I still am, I suppose. But I really, I really believed in myself. And obviously not like I was, you know, I still got nervous and things, but I I feel like compared to now, I really believed in my abilities, which, you know, I encourage everybody to have that self-belief. I even remember one time, I remember one of my first auditions, actually, I was at a singing lesson. It was like a Christmas, you know, group presentation or something like that, where, you know, we were all singing for each other in my Mm -hmm. singing class. And one of the girls came late. And she said, oh, I've just been to this audition and the teacher was asking her how it was. And I was like, what was the audition for? And she said, oh, it's for this new tap film. And I was like, tap film? Like, I love tap. I'm really good at tap. Like, why was I not at this audition? And it was for this choreographer that was really well known in Australia. And I said, tell me where it was. Tell me the details. Is it still going on? She said, yeah, they're doing the recalls like, you know, after lunch. But I got caught. I said, tell me where it was. Tell me the details. And I got in a cab. I remember I didn't have that much money. And I spent like a ridiculous amount of money on a taxi to go home, get my tap shoes and to go to this place. And I just rocked up there. I told them some excuse about why I should have been on the list and uh, they believed me and they let me go to the recall. Work. And I got the job. I got the job in this tap film, which also led me to get another job to be in the Sydney Olympics opening ceremony because it was the same choreographer. And I just remember that feeling that I knew that I should have been in that. I was really good at tap and I was like, they need to see me. (laughs) Work. I love it. I love it. (laughs) I love it. So, yeah, so that's my thoughts of starting out. And gradually over time, I feel like that confidence got chipped away. Mm. You know, the more kind of rejections you get, the more you kind of see like the real situation of things sometimes and maybe things that are not necessarily fair Mm -hmm. I remember that energy that I had slowly kind of got chipped away a little bit over the years but I I do remember that excitement that I had 
and that energy that I had for myself and for anyone else in my situation. Yeah. Yeah. So how about you? What was it like for you when you entered the profession? Similar. I was very determined. And actually, before I even like talk about me, it's just something about like, you know, when you're young and you're audacious and you just don't care and you're like, this is mine, you know? Yeah. It's like that energy is so, as an adult, sometimes I find it, a little off-putting but then it's like no you were once like that and Mm -hmm. that gets you places in some ways Mm -hmm. and it's like as you get older you kind of start to refine it a bit you know Mm -hmm. where where you're going to be audacious or where you're going to kind of like be a bit more diplomatic Mm -hmm. but there is something rich about that energy and something you said about like how it gets chipped away your confidence which is a shame it's like how do we tap into that you know, in a more refined way continuously as we get older. Yes. But yeah, I love it. Work. (laughs) (laughs) For me starting out, yeah, I was just really determined. I just knew everything that I wanted to do. I felt like in the same energy, how you were with that tap audition and other things is like, no, this is what I'm doing. This is my job. This is where I I want to go. This is who I want to be. I was Mm -hmm. very sure of myself and sure of of what I wanted out of a dance career. You know, I was a bit of a visionary for myself from very early. I think I might have shared this in another episode. I can't remember about, um, I was in even ninth grade in high school. I was in my Bible class. The teacher went around and asked everyone what they wanted to be, Mm -hmm. you know, when they grew up. And I was the only person in the class who knew at 13 years old, mind you, I was young for my class even, but at 13, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, what career I wanted to have, what company I wanted to dance for. And yeah, I just was very, very determined and tunnel vision, I think is really what it, what it was for me. Mm-hmm. And similar to something that actually uh, David said, David Blake said in last season about like having a vision and like staking with it, even if people didn't see it or believe it as well mm-hmm. because I know like once I got to college when I got to undergrad you know I was determined I was going to do everything they mm-hmm. told us you can only be in up to two dance pieces in the fall concert as a freshman I got into six and I was like I'm doing all six I don't mm-hmm. care what you guys say I'm doing all six of these pieces <laughs> and I'm gonna dance in a dance company outside of this you know because I was like I knew what I needed and what I wanted to really mm-hmm. get to where I wanted to be and I had my doubters, I had my haters, but I just still pushed forward in spite of that. So yeah, it was really, really determined, really determined. Yeah, we need to have that energy. We need to get that same energy. We do. <laughs> How do we find that now? <laughs> I don't know. I think we still have it just different ways. Mm-hmm. Maybe not for like absolutely everything. Yeah. But like I said, it's refined. It's like, Mm -hmm. I think for me now, it's about being really intentional with that energy. Like you said, I still have it in some ways, but it's like about very specific things. Mm -hmm. And in very specific ways, I have a bit more, a bit more boundaries about what I want to do and how I want to do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think before I was kind of like, yes, I'll do everything. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And I was also very much, even though I do support this mantra, you know, the kind of fake it till you make it kind of things. Now I'm more like, if I don't know how to do it, I'll just say, Mm -hmm. or find somebody who has those skills (laughs) that can do that. I don't really want to pretend or spend my energy doing things that maybe are not my strengths anyway. Yeah. So a bit of a change. Whereas before, like you said, I would have just put my hand up for 
absolutely everything sure yeah i can do that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no worries i can do that <laughs> i had no idea yeah it is fine but just now it's just not not what i want to do so much anymore yeah so not to discount that way of working it is fine for a time or you know but for me at this point it's not what i want to do anymore yeah i get that so obviously when we were starting out that was i don't want to say ages ago but mm-hmm. definitely a different <laughs> time than now <laughs> definitely was a different time yeah completely different time so you know you work with young people um Mm -hmm. and you have been consistently for the past I don't know whatever decade Mm -hmm. am I aging you sorry yeah (laughs) it's about that long probably 15 years it's fine yeah yeah what do you think it's like for young people today starting out well obviously the major difference is the existence of social media which we didn't have Mm -hmm. which means you can easily see what other people are doing and compare yourself to that Mm -hmm. um, more often whereas in the past you know the only comparisons you made was kind of in the dance studio in that moment Mm -hmm. but outside of that you didn't really know what people were doing or how they looked or anything like that whereas now you're faced with those constant reminders all the time so I think that's a real challenge or must be a real challenge for younger artists starting out that they're always just seeing what other people are doing so it makes it more challenging to just focus on yourself Mm -hmm. which is what you should be spending your energy on focusing on yourself and not really what others are doing but it's, it's kind of impossible so many more distractions but then on the positive side there is a lot more awareness and a lot more talk about mental health and how these things can affect your mental health whereas perhaps before that wasn't spoken about so much so it's positives and negatives so whilst there is more things going on there seems to be more support for all of those things as well Mm-hmm. So I find that because they do see social media and advertising a lot, they're a lot more aware of things like having a brand, having a personal brand and mm-hmm. marketing themselves in a particular way. Whereas before we, we did still have to have our personal brand, but it wasn't like it wasn't the focus. I mean, I do remember always wanting to go out with like a full face of makeup on. I do remember doing that. Mm-hmm. But now it's kind of just next level. You have to have a full mm-hmm. face of makeup plus your eyelashes and your nails. A fresh and, hair and all and, that. Yeah, <laughs> new hair and all that. So it's kind of the same, but just it's evolved really. But I think that there could be seen to have a lot more pressure. That's how it appears. I don't really know if that is the case, but that's, yeah. that's how it seems. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think definitely social media makes a huge difference in how young dancers can now almost have an autonomy over how their career starts. Mm-hmm. Whereas like with us, there was kind of only a handful of routes to mm-hmm. like get to a career. Like there was yeah. like the signature companies or, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be a concert dancer as mm-hmm. in like more classical and traditional dance techniques and you're on a theater stage Mm -hmm. or you're going to be a commercial dancer dancing Mm -hmm. in music videos but that's it Mm -hmm. now it's like there's so many pathways Mm -hmm. and you can use social media to kind of navigate that a lot faster Mm -hmm. than how we had like literally me I would find auditions in a local newspaper yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what I mean like it was only over time that they were like audition boards and Mm -hmm. online and you know Mm -hmm. postings and networks that you can tap into but it was literally like more so word of mouth or local things Mm -hmm. definitely not hearing about something that's happening 
across the globe as mm-hmm. frequently unless you're doing some really deep diving yeah. research. Whereas now you can find it like instantly. You know what yes. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And you can really I see like young people really taking ownership of their brand and of themselves and how they navigate both of those spaces because it was it was almost like I know in my dance circle the dance world is so much more connected now because of social media but in my dance circle in my world knowing a dancer that can do both commercial work and theater concert work was almost like a unicorn Mm -hmm. because it's like you had to be so tapped in to cross between those worlds Mm -hmm. whereas now it's like the norm Mm -hmm. to have a dancer who will dance behind burn a boy and then the next day you'll see them on stage with a concert theater dance company mm-hmm. and then they would be in a music video the next day or they you know what i mean we're doing a modeling campaign mm-hmm. it's like there's just so much more versatility yeah as artists not just as dancers which is really yeah, nice definitely. to see definitely yeah. there are a lot more options so that's really positive it will be interesting to see what our rising stars and our young artists continue to do absolutely and how they inspire us Mm -hmm. absolutely (laughs) we learn from them as well which is important always new stuff happening and you know we need to keep up to date as well yes so we're going to take a little break and when we come back we'll jump into our conversation with our guests we'll be right back Welcome back. It's time to introduce our guest for today. We are joined by none other than Patience James. Before she joins us, I will share some information about her. Patience James is a passionate and accomplished dancer, choreographer, actress, and teacher. She has appeared on several platforms, including X Factor, Wembley Arena, Indigo O2, Settlers Wells, Hammersmith Apollo, and Edinburgh's Fringe. Patience has worked on choreography and movement direction for brands like Nike and Adidas, industry panel talks for Adobe, hosted dance classes for Facebook and a performance for Twitter UK. Patience is one of the top Afrobeats choreographers in the UK and being a versatile, multifaceted artist allows her to work both commercially and in the Afro scene. She has performed and toured with a variety of artists and theatre companies. She graduated from WAC Arts for Musical Theatre with a concentration in dance, acting and singing under the tutelage of David Blake, Alessandra Soutin and many others. She is an extremely innovative and talented performer who enjoys her work and it shows. Her special abilities combined with an undeniable charisma have taken her to global platforms hosting dance workshops in Paris, Moscow, Dublin, Nigeria, Ghana, Spain, Amsterdam and more. Wow. She has worked for industry professionals such as Davido, Mr. Easy, Miss Banks, Fuse ODG, Cher Lloyd, Emily Sunday, David Guetta, Burner Boy, Naira Mali, and many others. Welcome, Patience. Welcome. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Of course, and it's great to have you here with us today. I remember when I first met you years ago, you had just graduated. So it's so exciting (laughs) to see all of that you have done and accomplished. And it's so early in your career. You have so much further to go. Mm -hmm. First, we want to get to know you. Who is Patience? the person so first off one of our usual questions where is home 
as cliche as it sounds and cheesy, there we are, there we are. That's my answer right there. Yeah. For me, home is where the heart is. And right now, my heart, my little daughter, is in London. So home is here for me. But I have some days that I'm just like, what is going on in the world? I want to pack it up and go back to Nigeria. That's home <laughs> for us. So I'll say it depends on what side of, of, of the bed I wake up on. So <laughs> London and Nigeria. That's home for me right now, where my daughter is at. Absolutely. And so, of course, with home, there's our comforts, and some of that is our food. So what's your favorite food from home? Let's start with London, and then you can tell us some of your favorite foods from Nigeria. To be honest, my favorite food is actually a Nigerian dish, Mm. Eba and Eforiro. I don't know if you guys know about those. Yeah. So Eba is, how can I describe it? Let's say something that looks like mash. (laughs) yeah with a, with a bit more texture and then the soup is just the icing on the cake and it's um you eat it in combi- um, combination with both that's my favorite 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 meal and whether it's nigeria i was eating it there of course i didn't i wasn't born here so i came here when i was 11 so mm-hmm. eating it there religiously came here did not forget about it eating it religiously mother taught me how to cook it so yeah i love that i love that food do you have like a special memory or experience around Eba and definitely like having that transition from Nigeria and then coming still kind of like young but impressionable age? What was that like? Um, for me, I was it's funny enough because I love the food, but my memory of it was not a good memory. So mm. there's a bit of a contrast there. So with that, I think my mom dropped us off at um, our auntie's house because she was going out and dad was not in. How I remember this... <laughs> it beats me but the memories just stuck with me forever now so for me they dropped us there and they would tell you especially my parents don't eat in people's houses i don't care who they are don't eat don't say yes to food even if we were starving we can't say yes we want to eat i don't know why (laughs) but this is family as well so Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can imagine how that felt so i think um it became my mom was late i think and so she made eba and soup i don't know if it was eforiro but I didn't want to find out because I was just thinking of how my mom was going to beat us up if she finds out that we ate. And um, I was like, okay, my sister, I was giving my sister the eye. My sister just ate it anyways, but I was a bit more shook. <laughs> she just ate it. I was like, no, I don't want to eat. And they were forcing me. And I was a twig back in the days. I was so skinny. And they were like, no, patience, you need to eat. We need to eat. And I was giving my sister the eye that you're going to be in trouble. But when I say they clamped me down and forced this food down my throat, and I just remember it sliding down in the most nastiest way ever. Oh. And I was just scarred for life. I just find it uncomfortable eating in people's houses. It doesn't matter what the food is now. But because of the way they held me down and shoved that down my throat, I'm surprised mm. that I still like that meal. <laughs> till yeah. Today. Yeah. So that's my memory of it. <laughs> I've heard that before where like parents will say, don't eat at someone else's house just because you don't know what they're going to give you or, you, you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's such a shame that you had that experience with your favorite food, but still good that you're able to still eat it today. Amen. But only when my mom cooks it, even in a restaurant as well, it's a bit of a struggle to eat things with my hands. I think I'll just about get away with like, okay, let me eat some jollof rice. But anything to do with me, like being comfortable and actually attacking it with my hands, I can't eat it just because of that memory. <laughs> Gosh, that sounds a little bit traumatic actually, mm. but you know, you've, <laughs> you've pulled through and at least the the food still has managed to hold a, a positive place for you yeah. now, which is, which is really good. I haven't tried it myself or maybe I have, but I, I'm not sure. So you'll need to, You'll need to cook it for us oh, one day to. and we will have no problems eating in somebody else's house. 
I'm just putting it out there, letting you know. <laughs> but it would be great to know some more about uh, growing up and if there is something that you would classify as a significant memory that you had growing up that shaped who you are today. I just always remember working, not like working for money or like working a job, just I don't want to say the struggle because to be honest, struggle is is whatever you make it to be, I guess. But um, I just remember it wasn't easy for us. You know, like how we have here, we've got the taps, we can just switch it on, on and off anytime. And it wasn't that we came from a less developed background, if I'm thinking of it now. It was just that a lot of things then and what we have now are very, very, are very different, basically. So let's say, for example, if we wanted to get like, a good amount, I'll say, a good amount of water, we would have to go to the well to fetch it. And that's what we called it. Oh, go to the well, fetch me some water. I need to wash some clothes that my mom wouldn't let us go in the house to waste electricity or waste water from the tap to use it to wash. It would be, you need to go to the well to go get it. So I always remember going and I wasn't not happy about it because that was the normal that I knew, if that makes sense. But obviously now I'm coming from where I am now and looking back, I'm just like, damn patience, you've suffered. You've actually suffered going then and doing it. It wasn't like, oh, okay, this is, you know, labor. It was more like, this is what we have to do to, to, to get water. This is what we have to do to survive. This is, this is life. This is it. So yeah, I remember like just, you know, even if it was like five rounds, we would go fetch the water from the well and to fetch it is another ugh, crazy, crazy thought right now because some kids actually dropped in the well as well. So you could drop in the well and it would become a whole big thing of, you know, trying to get people to pull you back out. So, you know, fetching it, we'll have to like shove a little bowl in there and tie it with a string and then pull it up and turn it in the, in the bucket and go back home and then do so until we have like a good amount. So I've always remembered to, basically I had to work. There's a level of work that I needed to do to get what I wanted. And that's mm. always stuck with me. It, it wasn't something that would come come easy as in switching on and off a tap. That's always stayed with me, especially now when I reflect back. I'm just like, listen, you think you have stress now. Like, you know, think of what you was doing. When I think of the age as well, probably must have been maybe eight, nine, ten, because I came when I was 11. But this, these memories were like, yeah, they're still like ingrained in me. And um, thinking of how young I was as well, doing that, I had to grow up really fast. So yeah, just to put in a nutshell, just to answer that again, I think it was just the memory of just um, having to physically do for me to get, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So do you think that's contributed to your work ethic now? Oh God, definitely. Big, 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 big time. I think in terms of like what I do now, I'm a physical learner anyways. I have to get up and like use my body and to be able to retain stuff. And I learn more by, you know, using my body. So with what I do now, especially being um, self-employed, there's a lot of things that I have to do for myself and can't rely on anybody else to do. It's made me tougher. It's made me stronger. And it's made me a go-getter, definitely. So I don't sit around and wait for um, things to come to me. I physically would go even if they say oh we need people with with um, brown hair back in the day you know when I'm like listen I need to get in the industry we need people with brown hair I don't care I'm going <laughs> they might change their mind that we want somebody with black with black hair but I'm still going to try and go I'm not going to get crash but you know <laughs> I'll try I'll find my way so I've always been resilient in that sense like mm -hmm. I go for what I need 
Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it has really helped the work that you do now. And, you know, it's not easy to have achieved everything that you have. So mm-hmm. something that seemed hard at the time, I guess, has ended up being a positive trait Definitely. that has worked in your favour. And about gate crashing, I'm, I'm a fan of gate crashing myself, <laughs> auditions. So, you know, I used to do that many times back in the day. Not that I'm mm-hmm. suggesting it to anybody, yeah, but, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes you need to do what you need to do. But yeah, that's amazing that you know you just put yourself out there and also that physical nature has obviously stayed with you mm-hmm. now we mentioned in your biog that you went to whack and you actually only graduated five years ago mm-hmm. which is you know not very long ago so did you have a plan for your career at that time do you know what I actually went to whack because I wanted to be a singer I was like I need to sing I know there's a voice somewhere but <laughs> let's see what this school could do for me. And uh, when I went there, they then told me about the whole nature of it being musical theatre. So you had to do this, that, this, that. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I came from like, actually, when I started dancing here, I was 19. And it was more of a hip hop company that I joined. So I was like, I have to do ballet. Like, what the hell? What's pointing of the feet? And I just, oh, you would just, you could see the difference when I walked in the ballet class. I'm sure she hated me because everybody's ballet shoes was tied up, like stringed up nicely. And I just came raggedy with my ballet shoes. Like, hi, I'm here. I went there for singing and um, it turned out that I found a passion for acting in a sense of theater. Um, with the dancing, I was like, I was there. I really, 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 really struggled in terms of the classical styles. And I was going to quit, to be honest. I really was going to quit. But I just thought to myself, listen, just stick to it. Nothing's ever easy. This is a whole routine for me where, you know, getting up at this time, finishing at this time, this is so hard. But I was determined to stay because I really wanted to get something out of this. And when we first came here, going back as well, it wasn't easy in terms of like passport for us where, you know, it wasn't easy to get a stay in the country. So for me, for WAC to be able to like, you know, see past that and like take us on, even if we had three years. So we had, it's not like we were legal. You had three years, but it wasn't like, it's like, don't get comfortable, you know? Because in another three years, you might have to renew that again. Or in another three years, they might say, go back to your country. Like it was like a limbo. So yeah, so I was very grateful to be able to even get into an institution like that to further my education. So I was like, listen, you have no choice. You're going to have to stay. And this, if you say this is what you want to do, you have to do it. And my mom was not even aware that I was pursuing musical theatre. That's another story in itself. I did a bit more research in terms of what I needed to get and, you know, what it would be like for the three years. So I said, okay, cool. If I wanted to do singing, just make sure you get all three disciplines inside your belt and just kind of just go for it. So coming to WAC, it literally opened my eyes. I'm not going to lie. It's informed the person that I am today in terms of choreography, how I make my work, how um, the discipline and, you know, just having a routine there. It's really, really shaped me. So coming there doing, thinking, yeah, I want to be a singer. I want to be a singer. And then actually graduating and thinking, no, I actually want to try all three. And then finding my passion for choreography. It's actually been a blessing. So I didn't think I was going to come out doing what I'm doing now in terms of um, choreography. I just thought, okay, I've got this now. Maybe I can try this. Maybe I can try that. I never saw what I've got now, if that makes sense. I didn't see this vision. I didn't see this route. I just thought, okay, now that I'm done, I could, you know, just apply for jobs and, Mm. yeah, try to join this agency, join that agency, 
this could be good. Da, 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 da. I just saw myself going from agency to agency. I don't know why I was, I didn't have no direction, to be honest, to answer the question. <laughs> okay. I, <didn't> <laughs> I know I'm rambling, but yeah, think about, thinking about it, I didn't have a direction. I just thought, okay, I'll join this agency, whatever they give me, I'll take. What was that turning point where you went from seeking agencies to making mm-hmm. choreography and then developing what we know now is Afro and heels class and that whole brand. And mm. then also the work that you do with Fumi, you know, you guys mm. had GOP dancers as well. What was that shift? Tell us about that journey. To be honest, back then the shift was just not like them not seeing the bigger picture in terms of having their trophy, black girl, their trophy, black boy. And if there was no space for two people, there was no space for three black people. Mm-hmm. Even if you did good, it's like they're almost, it's almost like they have, they know who they want because they have the people in their books, but they just want you to come along for numbers mm. and for show to make themselves look like, okay, this is how much people have turned up to audition for us. But we know we're not going to pick you because you don't come to no agents. You don't come to our open classes, but you're here now. So even if you did better, I remember this, like I did, you would do, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, no, I got this routine. Of course I performed it well. They kept me back. They saw something. And then someone from their book will do it wrong and they'll give them the opportunity to do it again that's when it clicked in my head that these guys are not really looking for for dancers they're looking for people that have actually you know like contributed into their pockets in terms of the open classes and who are actually in their books as well so going from audition to audition and like getting to the last stage and then seeing the the canteen culture in terms of oh we know each other Mm. oh i've worked with this guy before oh, we're in the books. Oh, you don't go to their classes. Why should they, do you know what I mean? And mm. every audition, it was just weird that I just began to see how, yeah, how much of a canteen culture it was. And if you're not playing the game, you might not, you know? I, but I always relied, I was like, oh no, I might be lucky one day, you know, they might just see, you know, the mm. talent and just be like, oh, let's just bring her along. But I remember going out and then one of the choreographers came back to me and said to me, patient, they really, really like you, but you don't come to the classes. How do we know you're going to do it? I'm just thinking, okay, okay, well, uh, maybe if I do get it, then I'll start coming to the classes. But I didn't know going to the classes was part of the, you know, criteria for auditioning. So that was when it clicked for me. And I was just like, you know what? I can't keep going. <laughs> I can't keep like doing this. I would go and um, get the experience, but I'm just going to leave the job bit out of my head and just, you know, whatever comes of it, comes of it. And for me, I knew that I had an eye for creating and I knew that if I didn't let it out physically, my brain would be clustered. So I would always move and create, move and create. And like you mentioned, Fumi would come because she graduated before me, after me, sorry. So she graduated first and then I followed after, sorry. And it was because of how I actually found work. And I remember when she graduated, she would always come back so we could use the studio space because at lunch times it would be free. But we were in that studio every lunchtime. After work, we would be in there. <laughs> I remember Piot, the caretaker, always called us trouble because we'd be hiding in the wardrobe, not wanting to go home. So anytime we saw a free studio, the studio would never be free because we would be in there utilizing the space. And that's how GOP became. And we had so much material that we created that we just thought, okay, let's just throw this on, throw this online and online stuff and YouTube and all of that wasn't even a thing, but we just kept putting things there, creating, putting things there. And I think in terms of choreography, that was how I got my confidence because I had Fumi by my side to be able to create. And she was like the second eye for me. And um, she would do the same as well. And I would give notes as well. And I think we kind of just worked on that skill and really harnessed that skill. Yeah, every day, literally every day in that studio, create, create, create. So um, that's how it kind of came about. 
for us. Oh, yeah. thinking about it now. Well, I was going to say, I remember seeing you guys a few times waiting on studio space. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm familiar. And so then going from that, building your confidence with Fumi by your side and then stepping out on your own to create Afro and Heels, mm-hmm. what was that transition for you? Do you know, Afro and Heels was like a blessing in disguise because I remember... I was in a very abusive, like mentally, I don't even know what's better, mental or physical, but at least physical, I know that I can beat you back. But mental is a, is a different, it's a different ballgame. So I was in a very um, mentally like abusive relationship. And I remember it was so difficult for Fumi to, to find a balance because anytime we would get bookings, whereas I used to handle it because Fumi was just not good with phones and like getting back to people on time. I would be in charge. And I, when I was in that relationship, it was a bit like, oh, you know what? Why are you answering this guy? Why are you answering that guy? No, somebody else should be doing it. You shouldn't be answering. So it was just hard because we were missing out on a lot of opportunities because of somebody who was very insecure and, you know, and just didn't understand the industry that I was in. And me being naive, I thought that was a version of love that I, you know, <laughs> that that love was, I guess. I thought that was what love was. So it was very hard for Fumi to work in that environment and I don't blame her at all because thinking about it now she felt she felt stuck basically so it's like why are you turning this down are you turning this down because it's a male booking um why are you turning this down for us is it because you know it was stuff like that she was I think it got to a point where it wasn't that she was fed up it was just like patience you know what maybe we're at different stages in our lives now let's take a break it's not a it's not a breakup it's just a break to be like let you like you pursue what you need to pursue and I will try to pursue what I need to pursue as well. And let's do individual work. And let's see if bookings come for GOP, we will do it as GOP. If it doesn't come, at least we have our own things as well. I respected that, to be honest. I respected that. And I just thought, okay, cool. If this is happening now, patience, you got you to gotta kind of fix up and get your affairs in order and know what's important and find a balance. Thank God that relationship is no more. But if kept me in a really really dark place and I didn't know where to go from there uh, but I knew that I needed dance was my only outlet creating was my only outlet and I needed to carry on the idea for Afro and Hills Fumi already had her thing to be fair so she was still teaching doing Afro and stuff blessing in this guys I went to a show I got invited and that was kind of like the first Afro beats show I would say that I wasn't um, working on so usually I'll either be backstage helping dancers working on the show in terms of choreography or movement directing um, for the first year, I was asked to just be an audience member, basically. And I was watching and I remember the artist just with the dancers on stage. Um, she was just like, she just came on and just went, guys, I don't want you guys doing this in barefoot. It looks ugly. I need you girls to wear heels. And I was just like, oh, OK. And these are like amazing, amazing dancers that we know in the industry. And when they brought heels for them, heels, um, to be fair, I don't know if they had, I don't know how they magically had the sizes of heels backstage, but... They brought it on. Girls put the heels on, did the same dance that we saw them rehearsing before the artist came and changed the whole thing, put the heels on. And they just looked like different dancers. They didn't look like the strong dancers that we knew. And I was just like, that was when the light bulb moment came in my head. And I was just like, wow, times are moving on. If she just switched and just went, guys, put on heels. And you're not going to say, oh, no, <laughs> this is wrong. We can't do Afro in, in heels. No, this is wrong. Technically, I've seen hip hop in heels. I've seen, you know, people try different things. And if times are moving, why not? You know, so for me, I thought, OK, 
this is when I thought for myself, like, okay, there's a space in the in the industry, I guess, for something like this, even if it's for something for us to come in and train in heels. Because if the artists come now and say this, we can't say, oh, we can't do this. They will just find somebody else. We're all replaceable in this industry, as we all know. They will get somebody else to do it. So I thought, okay, this is going to be a big, uh, it's going to be con- controversial, but I feel the need to, and I know that I was doing a lot of commercial heels, like classes as well. So, and I know the African and the, and the Afro beat, Afro beats, Afro, if we want all that term, I know the technique. So how do I now marry the two? So I spent like a year, like thinking about this long and hard, trying to develop something that, you know, don't necessarily take away from the heels technique but also how to marry the afro side to it as well so it's not like oh we just think it's nice to dance in heels let's just prance around and dance in heels so i try to develop something where we can both meet in the middle so people to understand both disciplines and do it in the most authentic way i see possible if that makes sense but still remembering we are in heels and there's an element of like fierceness and femininity that comes with that as well so for me, that's where it started. And there was a lot of unbelievers. And, you know, mm. he say, she say, back chat, back chat. But when I tell you, each week, I would see those faces. Obviously, they wouldn't say it to my face, but I would see those faces in class. And the way it grew out of, oh, I don't know. I, I, when I think about it now, it's just crazy. Because even in base, when we came into that space, it was just concrete and stones. Yeah. And I looked in that big studio and I said to myself, they were touring, like showing us around. Um, this is a studio for this this is a studio for that and I'm like okay this is my studio this is a small capacity yes this is what I can handle and we looked over at Jackson and I'm like let's not even look at that this is for the for the for the show now this is for the this this is for the that you know this is not our studio I just remember like the third week even in Afro Hills when I kept selling out that studio they were like patience you have to move patience mm. you have to move I'm like no I don't I don't want to move what if it's just for this week what if people don't turn up next week next week same thing so that you have to move you have to move you have to move and from that first day where we saw that and it only took about three weeks and i'm so grateful for that it's just it just it just took on it's like a beast of its own the way it yeah. just took off they just kept telling us go to the big studio go to the big studio and i had to stay there since that day i've been there i think it's more about like the community vibe and how people felt included it doesn't matter if you you know if you were in a wheelchair that like you take something out of that class you get mm-hmm. something out of it and yeah just seeing it grow and just take up take a form of its own was just amazing you know coming from um, not sure what my direction was to then being blessed enough to see that show to have that light bulb moment and then to finally put it on and have non-believers believe I didn't even care about them to be honest I was doing it because I know that there's a niche and there's a market for it and we need to train in that and we are women and if they tell us to do a style like that we can't just say no we're gonna have to try you know and if I didn't do it somebody else would yeah that's how it took off for me yeah and what you, you said something really important that I kind of want to bring forward is that you said even if in a wheelchair or if it's anyone else who is disabled mm-hmm. anyway they can still participate and I've seen like people come I've seen some of your videos and stuff and people are coming from all different walks of life and perspectives mm-hmm. and capabilities technically and physically culturally and it's it's really nice to see that all come together so what is the cultural importance for you to be able to teach and to perform African dance styles like that around the world and globally and to reach out to so many different people it's crazy because I always say everything starts from Africa like everything started from there and for me this is the only this is my identity this is the only thing that like culture that I know and I know that our people are wonderfully made and I just want to spread that joy and people can see it just by watching and just 
just seeing how we vibe with each other, seeing the cultural element of it, and it's about the people. So for me, I always say, I remember going to classes and I always felt like, why is it so strict? I feel like I can't breathe in this class. Yes, there's a level, there's, we need professionalism, but I can't learn and retain material in a hostile environment. And what Afro does to people is, it just makes you, it, it makes you free. Like you have to, you can't be military in my class, you know, <laughs> you need to be able to uh, loosen your body, to enjoy the music, to feel that connection with your next door neighbor. And just, yeah, and I, I would say go with the flow, but in terms of like the cultural element, it's very important for people to to get a bit of knowledge from me rather than just, okay, I'm coming to class and just getting choreography. I like to give them a little bit of something, whether it's a struggle, because, you know, we know people nowadays like to take the, the glamorous side. Nobody really wants to come in when it's, the, when it's the struggle bits, you know? So I like to make sure there's a good balance. And so if I'm able to like spread the word and spread the culture, and if you want to do it because you've come to my class, then you have to go find your own truth, you know, because there's a lot of people that try to replicate Afro and Hills now. And it's like, okay, but why? Why are you do? What is the, what's the reason? Why are you doing it? What are you teaching? Like, like how are you merging it? It's not just I'm dancing to the music and then doing commercial style. There needs to be a message basically on why you're doing it. It's not just for the fashion or because it looks glamorous or because it's taken off. Like I put my neck on the line to kind of bring it there. So I want people to be able to carry it further, but it needs to be authentic. It needs to be coming from a from a true place. If I see somebody from Russia, like actually there was somebody from <laughs> Russia doing it, and it's like, okay, it's not because you're white. It's because do you know the culture? Do you know the Afro side of it first before you're coming? Okay, you might know the hills, the hills side, which is a bit still techie in terms of the technical elements of it. But do you know the Afro side also? So you cannot just call it Afro in Hills. Maybe you can call it something else, but it can't be Afro in Hills. And now I wish I've, I chose a different name because Afro in Hills is just so generic. So I do, I appreciate seeing people doing it and trying new stuff. But in terms of like the teaching element of it, it's like there's some stuff that we need to protect for ourselves as well, you know? And if you if there's a tutor there that can, you know, teach it in its authenticity and its, in its real life and its truth, then why not? But um, in terms of spreading the culture and stuff, I'm all advocate for that. And I want people to feel like it's something that they can do. It's something that they enjoy. The fact that people come from different countries, like you said, to come take the class is because they see something in there. And I encourage that. And I, I encourage that a lot. It's just a lot of times in, in, in the era that we're in, people see and then they do without understanding first. Yeah. Definitely what you said about it needs to be authentic is mm-hmm. something that we, or I think is, can't speak for you, Heather, is something that <laughs> is important that, and you, need, and you do often see people just take the steps and we've seen mm-hmm. it throughout time. They just take the steps with no background, with no history and mm-hmm. um, no extra knowledge behind it. It's so important that you're able to connect that in all the work that you do. You spoke before about, you know, how you started off with uh, Fumi doing things on YouTube and you also mentioned how your classes just blew up in mm-hmm. a really short space of time so I'd love to know how you've been able to maximize the exposure and reach of your work through social media honestly it's been that has been a a blessing to be fair because it just started that I knew that I wanted to document things in terms of not being able to see if I have a lot of people in class I can't physically give the attention to like 
each individual, do you know what I mean, as much as they'll need. So I knew that, okay, I need to find a system. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care if I'm not making money now. I just need to find a system where at least they can refer back to the video and see the notes for themselves and say, Patience, can you watch me in this? Can you give me notes? And I thought, okay, I'm going to try to record and just put it out there on YouTube. So if they ask me for something, I'm not scrambling for my phone. I can just give them a link and they can go back and watch. And honestly, that was how it started. And it just took off on it it's, it's crazy it just literally took off on its own and i think it's because of being consistent as well but it didn't stem from oh i need people to see it abroad it stemmed from oh my students need notes and if i can't see them individually in class at least i've got a video to refer back it was on youtube I, i'll say first and then i thought okay let's just open an instagram page as well just to um try to reach different mediums because i know um with youtube is more I get more American followings there and um, a lot of people around the world see that more, I would say, than YouTube. I mean, than Insta. So I thought, okay, let's find a good balance. If I, whatever I put on YouTube, I just try to post and see and just leave it there. There wasn't much thought in terms of like branding back then because my logo, everything was not even tied together. It was just like, boom, here we are. Take it. Yeah, there's, I don't know, there's a, there's a joy in like just not having pressure on stuff and then just having it just do its thing and that's literally what happened it just did its thing and people were finding the classes from like oh i saw your video on youtube i saw i would have people from america like trying to not knowing that i haven't had my number on there i was just like oh my god patience what the hell so when it became <laughs> when it took off on its own i just thought okay you need to get your affairs in order now we need a branding we need to make sure this is right and you're not having americans calling you at what what times or clock in the night so that's when I realized, wow, okay, this has taken off. And then from having like zero subscribers, it was growing and growing and growing. And then I tried to understand the, the it's like a game. I call it a game, like, especially being a, I call myself the older generation in terms of people doing Afro here. We have a little batch of us that are like the, we call ourselves the grannies. <laughs> you have to play the new school game as well and try to keep a balance, but try to not take away from your creative outlet as well just because you're playing the social game if that makes sense so yeah i had to find a good balance in terms of um okay post 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 my work quality i'm sorry it will never change but um in terms of like keeping up to date with um posting and being consistent in that that game i can play so yeah just being consistent just made it all just skyrocket to something that i didn't expect at all yeah that's amazing and if you're a granny in the dance world i don't know what that <laughs> right. makes me makes us patient. i was gonna say but, uh... you know, <laughs> well just push that to one side because you know no one needs to know how old i am anyway yeah it's really interesting how you said that you, you know it started off more as kind of like a teaching tool mm -hmm. and but now you know you you play the social media game mm -hmm. so to speak so does your use of social media impact how you create your work? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Definitely not because oh, it's so hard because we do, I would like to say, even with pieces sometimes, I think about, I'm like, do you know what? If I don't let this out of my body, like emotionally, physically, and give it out there, I know that my brain will be clouded. I won't be able, it just feels like I can't breathe when I can't create, to be fair. So I cannot play the, the social media game because a lot of things now, that if you want to trend, you just do the challenges that you see around the trending challenges, not just any challenge. And that does not fulfill me. Of course, if you want to do it for fun, I have the TikTok for fun. Now, TikTok is for fun. I will just, whatever. If I feel like, oh, I love this challenge. This is trending and I love it. Let me do it. I'll put it on TikTok. That's it. But for me, as a creative, I can't let it affect my creativity. 
So I, if, if Instagram likes it, Instagram likes it. If, if it doesn't, I'm not going to lose no sleep. If YouTube likes it, they like it. I'm not going to lose no sleep because at the end of the day, these people subscribe or followed you because of the material you put out. So I cannot let, you know, playing the game in that sense hinder my work and hinder my creativity and my outlet because that's the only way I can I can fully 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 feel free if I'm being honest I'm not there's not bashing you know challenges and stuff like I said I'll do it on my TikTok if I feel like oh I really need to do this challenge but in terms of me creating material with depth I have a lot of um pieces that I would love to 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 just like you know throw out there Sometimes I think about, okay, cool, is, is this the right medium? And then when I catch myself doing that, I'm like, I don't care if it's the right medium. I want, if I want to put it out, I'm going to put it out. Let me put it out. If Instagram don't like it, like I said, they don't like it, but it's not it's not for them. It's for it's for me to be able to move and know that, okay, I've done something and I've put it out there. And that's really, really helped me in just people just finding my stuff and knowing that, okay, we want to book patients because of that. There's a balance for me. There's a balance. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, all throughout our conversation, you've been talking about that balance and also staying grounded and authentic, mm-hmm. which is really important to to keeping the essence of what you do without trying mm-hmm. to follow trends. So exactly. definitely commend you for that and staying you. true in your integrity of your work. So yeah. can you share with us what or who is your biggest inspiration when you're creating? I always find it so hard to answer this question because I feel like life, I don't have a particular thing. Even my mom, my mom is another one as well because of all the things she's been through and still going, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would say life and, and my mom and just being able to see, if I can't see things, I can't I can't translate that into movement, if that makes sense. So for me, seeing when I was having, when it was too much here in this country and I went to Ghana and automatically what my eyes saw I was I really wanted to create it's like my body was shaking oh I've got so much ideas and stuff so for me inspiration is is life Mm -hmm. and just being grateful that I can be able to see all these things and feel these things and feel all these emotions to then translate I don't know in terms of people I would yeah I think it's my mom in terms of people to be honest with you Mm -hmm. it's my mom because even just watching her even when she's arguing and her mannerisms it's a whole dance routine (laughs) her whole mannerism is something else I'm trying to think in terms of like art and what I do choreography wise there's somebody called Galen Galen Hooks I don't know if you know Galen Hooks I really love her method in in the way she um portrays her work and the way she really really taps into the artist rather than the again the whole commercial side of things and and trendy sort of thing she doesn't really do things like that she really really taps into the artist and tries to find the true meaning of movement so she she inspires me as well because I remember working in that way and didn't think there was minds like that and then finding her method and just thinking okay oh no she's she's on a different level she's at a different level so it made me it made me feel good that okay there's still people with like integrity in the game as well and like just a clear way of just seeing through the fog and really really tapping into the artist and making sure they can get the true essence of a piece so she works in that way and I appreciate that as well so yeah life mother and um artistically choreographical galen hooks lovely thank you for saying that so speaking of mothers you just recently became a mom in the middle of the pandemic and also in the middle of a rising career can you tell us (laughs) what that experience has been like navigating that balance between becoming a mom Mm. the pandemic and then this brilliant career that's on the rise Thank you. For me, it's, I always tell people it's a blessing on a curse. It was a big blessing on a curse because 
blessing as in everything was put to a halt like nothing was working outside like I like to say so I think if I got pregnant now I would be like my friend that is pregnant now where it's just like oh my I'm missing so much everybody's in a festival and she's just depressed even extra like the hormones are not enough so for me in the pandemic it was like okay let me concentrate on what's happening in my body and I remember that even though outside was not you know functional inside was like you know they had zoom now and all this going on and there was a level of "Mm, do I want to put anything on zoom do I not want to and I thought okay I'll do that in my my first trimester I was in zoom a lot and I was just like why why I hate this and I stopped I was just like you know I'm not forcing myself I'm not I've never been one to follow crowd so I'm not enjoying it and I feel like I'm giving too much but I'm talking to a screen you know it's not the same teaching afro in 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 zoom is not the same as teaching afro in a studio with people so I stopped that I just thought okay cool this is happening I'm, I'm happy if I don't do it now when like my mom said your eggs are drying up you know, so this is it for me. <laughs> the whole process of it, I was I was happy just because I didn't have. I heard a lot of horror stories and seen a lot of um, you know, horrific things online because I like to prepare myself. So the blessing of it was like not missing out on jobs, I guess, and not having to leave my house. I just did feel nauseous, but I didn't really really throw up, so I didn't really get the morning sickness um like that to say. So I had a very very good experience in terms of the pregnancy. And, um, you know, working and stuff, not being able to go out and things like that. So I could sit my ass down, which is good because sometimes I do too much. So I think it was God's way of telling me sit down as well. So I appreciated that. The downside of it was, you know, the health care and people being so scared of COVID. And I just thought, boy, I, I hope things go well because I know if something was to happen and I, you know, wanted to go hospital, it wouldn't be as easy because they tried to keep you, to literally keep you away from there. And I was just so grateful that I had, a very very good run when I was I think nine months yeah yeah yeah. when I was actually no my due week I was supposed to be due in my when I was 40 week actually because I went on tour for 41 weeks and um I thought okay something is not right something is wrong and the way they were not trying to make me go to hospital and I'm like guys I've had a very good pregnancy I haven't disturbed you people once I didn't have a midwife I, I didn't have nothing so I didn't have the the luxuries of a, of a pregnant woman and I remember even when outside was open a little bit I was still teaching nobody knew I was pregnant I was still going out doing here and there little bits and bob so I didn't really really get ill and I thought okay something is wrong now I need to go in I need to go in and they were, they were trying to tell me to go A&E in fact don't come in just you know rest drink this drink that I was like no guys I literally had to lie that my baby was not moving only for me to go in and find out that I had COVID and it was really really bad and I was in my 40th week of pregnancy as well and I was just looking at them like, you know what you guys told me when I called you on the phone, you told me to go to A&E. And that's for me, that's when I pushed because you even told me to just stay at home and not come in. And I feel like the lack of care that we receive in general, is just, it's just crazy. But I'm stubborn. So I, even if they told me not to come, I would have gone. I would have told my partner like, okay, drive me there. We're going now. Because at that time, I think it'd been a month or yeah, I think it'll be a month or a couple months actually where I lost my friend who was eight months pregnant. She she died with her baby. And I can't help to think that if, you know, if it wasn't for the pandemic and she was given the midwife all the symptoms she was having, they would have called her in for blood work. Do you know what I mean? They would have said, come in, have your blood taken if the pandemic wasn't such a thing. But like I said, they were physically trying to keep people away, especially pregnant people. I understand they were trying to keep pregnant women away from the hospital. So if I had told my midwife I was having symptoms like that, she probably would have told me it's nothing to worry about. It's your pregnancy symptoms. But I know for a fact when I watch her videos now and she's saying, oh, you know, I can't walk from here to this 
place without like from one room to another without being out of breath i can't when i vomit my hand go numb i'm thinking that's not pregnancy symptoms no it's not that that's not normal you know and i feel like if it wasn't in the midst of a whole global pandemic they would have listened to her a bit more so it kind of just gave me a little bit the kick of the ass to be like no patients don't try to do ginger and and garlic this is not a ginger and garlic situation you need to go in you know so i went in and yeah they told me listen yeah you do have covid it's really bad and we're going to put you on blood thinners um so i was injecting myself like just so my blood does not clog up and you know cause complications and i was just like wow if i didn't go in like i can't even imagine you know what would what what would have happened but like i said blessing on the curse because just to see just to see doctors that back then was just mad and then not having somebody to talk to a midwife was just crazy so i did all the work that i needed to do in terms of like researching even if it was wrong information i was overly overly prepared so the fact that they thought i it was my second child with the way i was speaking to them they thought it was my second child i was like no it's my first child but yeah i'm prepared because i didn't get anything i literally did not get anything so just i would say the birth was the best because i feel like because i suffered that 40th week and jesus was just like we're going to give you a break patience after you had COVID and I didn't even have the, the energy to scream because everybody's looking at me like, are you, are you contracting? I said, I'm contracting, just be quiet. So anytime <laughs> I didn't want anybody to talk. Like you could talk after. So <laughs> when the pain has gone, I'll be like, okay, everyone carry on talking. So when I went there, they told me, no, you're not dilated. You're not more than four centimeters dilated. You would know if you're more than four centimeters dilated. And I said, check me, I'm dilated. <laughs> I'm not screaming because I had COVID a week before and I'm trying to recover and save my strength for the push, okay? They didn't want to, and my partner just made them like, listen, you need to check her, you know, check her. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lady checked and I was seven centimeters dilated and they went back just mumbling to themselves like I can't see them in the room, like, how come she's not screaming? How come she's not, oh, she's seven centimeters. I was like, okay, well, can you can I have my painkillers now? Thank you, I'm ready. <laughs> Give me my painkillers. I'm not about to do this unassisted. I don't want to be anyone's village hero. I didn't come here to suffer <laughs> that okay. much. Let me just give me what I need. But even then, they didn't want to give it to me. I don't know what it's wrong up with these doctors, man. Honestly, I just feel like they think we can handle it. And this is where they fail to give us the care that we need. You know what I mean? We've, we've mm. Especially black women, we go through so much in terms of like, we're more successful to getting this. We're more prone to getting that. You're more, you know, prone to getting the fibroids, the this, the that. But yet they give us the bare minimum. And I never, never understand that. I never understand that. Anyways, Eliana was kicking to get out and she literally, it was literally less than five minutes. No, actually, I think I pushed twice and then she literally just slid out. She was ready. And because I didn't know what sensation I was supposed to be feeling in terms of, you know, when the baby, um, the the pressure, the pressure, I didn't know because she was ready to come out from uh, from long. But they thought, they gave me a time of when they estimated that I would be 10 centimeters to start the pushing and she came like she was ready way she was ready three hours before they they, they told mm. me you know and she the lady she was actually waiting and eliana's heartbeat was dropping it was just a panic as well i was just like oh my goodness these guys are gonna give me a heart attack without even me pushing yet and the way they were panicking like oh no 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 oh, she's 10 centimeters already oh the baby needs to get out this is oh. i was like okay literally i'm the one telling them can we all just calm because i don't want to die of you guys <laughs> of you guys like making me shook about you know with the way you're panicking so they had to literally like just do it asap and because she was ready i could feel the pressure but i just thought okay that was you know the pregnancy pressure but that was the pressure of her saying let me out so thankfully enough you know 
they did sorry i'm telling you my whole <laughs> your whole birth <laughs> story they did the job eliana was good so the pandemic <laughs> in itself is just honestly a story to tell it was yes. a blessing and a damn curse <laughs> yeah i can imagine and i'm sure it's a new balance now going back into your career or you know coming back into working again as a as a new mom it's a learning curve but you will figure it out I'm definitely still figuring it out each day. Yeah, it gets better. Definitely, it's getting better. I found a routine that works. Like I was saying before, it takes a village, and I'm grateful that I have people around me supporting. Because I honestly thought after I gave birth, people are gonna leave me alone. But in fact, it's 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 worse now. It's worse because, like I said, the pandemic happened, and it gave me the time to recover. I was up on my feet. My first job was at three months postpartum, so it felt like I didn't take a break just because they saw me dance throughout my pregnancy as well. You know. So I just thought in my head, no, guys, I actually thought I was going to be, you know, scrounging and looking for jobs because I've had a baby. But thank God it's actually been the opposite. Again, blessing and a curse because I do want to rest. Yeah, it's been a blessing and a curse. And I only take things that I, I know that will be beneficial for my creativity, for my daughter, you know, financially. It, make, it needs to make sense now. I'm not out of my house, you know, you know, for something that I don't need to be out of my house for. And I'm grateful that I'm in that position to be able to pick what I want to do. Yeah, well, that sounds like an incredible journey, your pregnancy and having COVID as well. That's unbelievable and just really thankful that you were able to recover from that. And, you know, but you had some tragedy there. So really sorry to hear about your friend as well that you lost what you were able to learn from it and that you were able to recover and that you are still in high demand as we can see and that we've heard which is really positive to hear and so thinking about that you know we did mention that you graduated just five years ago we we really wanted to speak to you as we had a vision of talking to people who we consider a rising stars but you you've kind of risen it's not even rising it's risen it's up the top there Mm -hmm. but with that in mind what is your vision for yourself for the future either personal or professional Mm. I just I want to be able to I feel like with our community I'll say with the new school kind of you know afro dance I put the umbrella afro dance um there's not much out there for us in terms of like let's say you know like move it they have their show we have commercial shows like dancers delight we have um even breaking convention being even able to perform in breaking convention in itself was another mind-blowing thing where it's like okay are you sure you want us us afro afro guys in that stage with hip-hop dancers you know that's a crazy thing in its own but it opened my eyes and i just want to be able to put on shows that will bring our people on if that makes sense our little community here on i want to be able to sit back and just give people the opportunity as well to show them that you can do this beyond social media because i feel like now with our generation and the new school afro beats or afro beats if you want they only see social media as the be all and end all they don't really see themselves on that stage platform and i think bringing a couple of them on with the show we did just at breaking convention actually really opened their eyes to like a more you know a more professional environment theater and having audience actually see them rather than people watching them on screen on the phone and you can see how hungry they are they're so so talented it's just sometimes they need that refining and there's no discipline and there's you know there's no opportunities like that for them to really showcase their work and we even had a gala yesterday actually and they invited us back to perform which was again amazing they want to finally finally all my ideas hopefully fingers crossed will be put on a platform where i can actually bring more of our industry in as well. 
So that's my vision. I just want to put on shows <laughs> for now because they change all the time. But now, right now, I want to be able to put on shows where we can get everybody involved. That sounds amazing. And I'm sure that's well close in your future. Um, and it's exciting that you've been able to sort of make that space for yourselves and for others. That's really, Thank really you. important how you can not only you know, make an impact for your own career and livelihood, but as well, like you said, share that mm-hmm. with those that don't feel like or haven't been shown that, that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to round up our conversation. We're just about done. But before we finish, we always have a little surprise question for our Ooh. guests. <laughs> so we're going to take it back to food. You know, the show is called Yams and Yuka. <laughs> We got to top and tail our meal. So our question to all of our guests is, which do you prefer, yams or yuca? And how do you like them cooked? I'm going to go with yam. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yam. And how do you like it? Boiled so I can eat it with stew with my hand. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And what's the perfect meal, including the yams? I like the yams with the plantain and a bit of fried turkey on the side. It's a Ghanaian dish, actually, and my partners would be looking at me like, oh, I thought you don't like Ghanaians. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you call it? Chofi. So Ghanaian food, they call it chofi, and then they have the yam. But with the yam, they don't usually boil it. They fry it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, if I was going to do the whole meal, I'd say, okay, the yam may be fried, but I prefer boiled. Um, chofi, which is a turkey. Um, and then you have plantain, and then you have your little shito sauce on the side. Mm-hmm. Oh, now I'm hungry, girls. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. So can you tell us, patients, what you're working on now and how can listeners learn more about you and your work? Oh, thank you. So what I'm working on now, actually in the works of, you know, Dustin, bringing back the old, the old show's idea. Thank God, fingers crossed it happens. Just because some people at Sadler's World might want to get behind. I will use the word mics, you know. I don't want to jinx anything, but hopefully. So I brought back the books, brought back my writings um, to try and get this show on the road now and actually mm. make it happen. So I think I had to put it on the back burner because oh, it's just a one-woman show all the time and I was tired. And of course, I got a baby and I just said, listen, if I ain't got no help now, let me just wait with that idea. So I'm very glad now that it's something that is in discussion. Mm. of happening so just stay tuned i guess with the socials if anything's happening it will be announced because i really do want to put on like a show for the culture that's what it's called for the culture speak it to existence speak yes. it to fruition it will happen please tell the listeners where they can find you on social media so they can connect with you mm-hmm. so you can find me on instagram on youtube on twitter anywhere from patience j choreography as the handle you will surely get the other pages as well so patience j choreography thank you so much patience and we really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule having your little one with you here so that we can have this conversation with you it's been so great to hear how you've grown and started to really shape your brand and your work and who you are and we're excited to see what comes next Thank you so much. Thank you, girls. Oh, I had a good time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And we really look forward to seeing your show at Sadler's Wells. You said it might happen, but you need to say that it will happen. Um, so we look forward to that. And we really thank you for taking the time to speak with us today and wish you all the best with everything. And I can't wait to see you back on stage and see this one-woman show. 
Mm. We'll be there. Oh, definitely not one woman show. Amen. Oh, <laughs> oh right, not one woman show. Okay, so maybe that's a start. So not a one woman show. I I changed that to see the full cast production that will go on tour nationally and internationally. Amen. Yes. There we right. Go. <laughs> I correct myself. Apologies. <laughs> thank you, ladies. Amen. For that. Yes, thank you so much. And we're going to take a little break, digest everything patients just share with us. And when we come back, it'll be time for dessert. We'll be right back. We are back and it's time for our sweet and savory desserts. We're going to do a recap of those moments in the conversation that give us a sweet sugar rush or the others that are more rich, stick to the stomach and a bit more fulfilling. So for me, my sweet moment with patience was when she was talking about waiting around at Whack Arts until the classes were over and her and Fumi could jump into the studio and work on choreography. And that was really sweet to me because that's actually how I met Patience was I was teaching at WAC Arts. This is like when I first started teaching, I think she had only just graduated. So she was still able to access the facilities and her and Fumi were waiting to come into the studio right after my class. And, you know, I, I introduced myself. She was like, oh, yeah, David told me about you. Da da da. And that's literally how I first met her. So. Yeah, it was just really sweet to have that sort of like reminiscing about that moment and, and her doing that. And definitely those students at WAC, they were always like that all over the years of teaching there. They really were just eager to get in the studio, work on choreography, review stuff, you know, share things with each other. And yeah, it was just it was good to sort of like think about that moment that you have when you're in undergrad or when you're studying and you're just first starting out how you're you just always want to do and work and and create new stuff what about you yeah that was a good moment and I think she mentioned that she would hide in the cupboard so that the cleaner wouldn't find them which is (laughs) also just highlights the enthusiasm and that fire that you have when you're young and excited and really wanting to create work so my sweet moment was her when she said she had to adapt to the situation of dancing from barefoot choreography to putting on heels mm. and how she just uh, she was told to put on heels for a show and she just did it and saw that as an opportunity and that kind of is really what kick-started her style her unique class of afro in heels so yeah so I thought that was a sweet moment because she was just so willing to just adapt and do whatever was required and do what was asked of her in mm. that moment without thinking about it or having without having necessarily have planned it in an in-depth way beforehand so yes that was my sweet moment yeah and it is sweet how like just something so random or spur of the moment can spark such a Mm -hmm. huge part of someone's life or a huge part of your career Mm -hmm. you know something that could be insignificant to others I'm sure the other people who were there with her it didn't even cross their mind that this could be a whole new way of yes. like creating work and having having a career behind it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was really, really sweet. What about your savory moment? 
So my savoury moment was just her attitude with training that she had, that she said that she had to stick with it and that nothing is easy because I think, you know, it may not have been things that she was familiar with before, but she recognised the value of training at work that you just mentioned and persevering and getting through any of those challenging times, especially if it wasn't a style that she was familiar with and things like that. So, yeah, so that kind of tenacity and, and sticking with it, which is part of her character, which has allowed her to make the great achievements that she has, that is my savoury moment uh what about yours my savory moment was when she was talking about putting her students first you know when she started teaching and really making sure that they're at the forefront and giving them everything and that being sort of like what leads her in making decisions and that's also helped lead her into greater success it resonated with me because that's how I operate that's how I teach is really making sure that what I'm doing is not even focused on me, but really my students and the, the dancers that I'm training are at the center of what I'm doing. Because I've had teachers like that where, not many, but there are some teachers that come in and it's like the class is just for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just for them to like show off, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But they're not yes. really <laughs> paying attention, yes. you know, and that's not a good feeling. But, you know, my most impactful And inspiring teachers have been the ones that have really put the students at the center and like you can feel it, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can you can see it, how it shapes what they do and how they teach. So, yeah, definitely very important. So it was positive to hear that that's how she approaches her work. And obviously it kind of must be how she approaches it because she's so successful and her classes are so well received. So students feel that, like you said, People feel that energy and they feel that authenticity. Yeah. Something else she mentioned about being authentic. So uh, I think that is a good point to finish on, being Mm -hmm. authentic. And if you are a teacher to having your students at the heart of everything that you do and not just coming in and and just doing steps, you know, really plan and think about it. So, yeah. So I guess on that note, that will be it for today. And we would like to thank you all for listening. Please, as always, let us know what your sweet and savory moments were using the hashtag Yams and Yuka. That's right. And don't forget to tag us at Yams and Yuka on Twitter and at Yams and Yuka podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Alternatively, those of you who would like to reach out via email, I don't know if we should even say what our email is. We don't get listener emails, no. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> We're going to keep trying. Email us at yamsandyukapodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is yamsandyukapodcast at gmail.com. Yes, we absolutely want to hear your thoughts on today's conversation. So let's keep the conversation going. Feel free to share your stories as well so that we can add it to our Yams and Yuka tapestry. And we will chat with you guys again next time. Bye. Bye.